Kind of weird they've yeah. decided to let us know right now. Because they've yeah. known for a long time. Yep. And Tucker's doing yeah. a special on it right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I understand. He's got more footage that he's releasing tonight. And, and you know, just so many of us were, it's, it's like, you know, we've said before how how bad do we have to know that we're bleeding and so some of this is just like um we don't need to know we we already know it's happening and it's not like we need to open up and look at the wound every time just to just to see how bad it's still bleeding you know we um in none of this is of a surprise to us none of this is you know, it's a confirmation only is what it is. And beyond that, it's just like more movie production, really. And uh, but there's there's no doubt about it that. Uh, uh, well, we we live in a, we live in a time. Say what you will about this president. And we've said our piece about him. Um from time to time, <laughs> but this former president, Trump, um, we certainly did get to see an awful lot revealed to the vast majority of the sleeping population uh, about what's going on. And for that, we just give praise and glory that the sheep are waking up and and they're going to, you know, get tired of it enough that they're going to insist on the change. But, you know, um, we still are striking at the root or at the branches. As Henry David Thoreau said, there's a thousand hacking at the at the br branches for the the one hacking at the root. And the root is right now uh, um, solidifying its ability to prevent hacking at the root. And legislation's being proposed all over the country, uh, calling any conversation or any communication or any whatever regarding these people called Jews today uh, as a hate crime. And um, they do not seem to, the, the general populace certainly to, has not, has not wised up to what yet is the root of the problem. And we, uh, in the meantime, we'll continue to do what we can to, uh, enlighten people with the root of the problem and uh, uh but there may be there may come a time when when they will come after the saints in a way we've not seen for 2000 years or maybe less than that because there were there's been periods of time in the history where they've come after the saints and yeah. 
in spite of it all, they've persevered and the world had had been a better place, um, albeit uh, it's it's on a trajectory of destruction for sure. So good evening, Isaac. I see you're muted now. I'll just say hello. And uh, so anyhow, what's on the rest of your guys' mind, Russell? Psalms um, 15 was on my mind, I think. Psalms 15. I think so. I think so, and that's something that's been, something I've been talking to you about is how do we find favor with God? And I think he must have sent it to me. And there's no... There's uh he didn't leave any gray area. Um, it's just a short chapter in the Bible and it answered I don't think I've ever I don't recall ever reading it before. I'm sure I have. But it answers a lot of questions. So I don't know what you have planned for tonight, but this is the uh, Psalm 15. It's, uh, five, yeah, we can op- we can open up with that. Go ahead. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who may abide in thy tent? Who may dwell on thy holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Now, doesn't that sound like a promise? It sure does. And isn't it interesting, there in five, he does not put out his money at interest. Exactly. He, do, he does not take a bribe against the innocent. Well, we all want to. We all want to abide in the tent, don't we? I know. I know. We do. Here does. Mm-hmm. And so we have to learn works of righteousness and integrity and speak truth. And I mean, here's a whole list of stuff that we do not need to do. And I just thought that really puts it all right there in a simple little place, doesn't it? Yep. It sure does. So that's what I was thinking about when you I, I, I also mm-hmm. have one other thought. If they're 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 really telling us 
that were slaves, aren't they? And when they put that tape out there, they're they're saying, um, here it is, this is the truth, and there's nothing you can do about it because your voting mechanism has been fixed. You can't make a change. You best you better turn to your Lord and repent. That's your only way out, it seems like to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, and we've had this conversation before is that there's a lot who want that salvation, I guess, to come through through men. And um, I think in res- in some respects, part of the thinking that I had this evening as well is going to kind of dovetail into, into that thought because in, in looking at our condition and so forth, um, understanding what actually is required of us in the will of the creator, it should make us all the more adamant for his will. And we're seeing signs that people know things are not right. But I I think that they're still looking to that idol that we've erected in the land mm-hmm. as, as more revered than god himself and that's you know an unfortunate thing because it shows that our allegiance if you will our loyalty is more tied to that yet that work of men than it is in abiding in his true you know divine and reverent will and uh, this is, you know, frustrating for those that have been called according to his purpose. Uh, we find ourselves struggling day by day to figure out how to apply ourselves in in the world. And, um, you know, partake of sharing that blessing that he's bestowed on us with others as every day goes by it's a natural thing for us to think how am i going to take care of the bread for tomorrow <clears throat> and and it brings more meaning to us now when we think about those words when he tells us to take no thought for tomorrow because we can see how in just the shortness of the span of time like a vapor we can see that only what matters is truly that we still recognize him more above anything else that we can possibly do or think and i i think about this a lot there are people that just day by day and perhaps I was that person for a time. 
um, hanging every day, you know, looking through the the information of the day to see what was happening and what was going on and how bad it really was, you know, uh, essentially is is the way we almost have to look at it. And, uh, you know, you get the texts from people, the emails from people, take a look at this, take a look at that. You know, Tucker's on tonight, you know, more January 6th footage, you know. And yes, there's there's no doubt that it it helps to be informed. But like I said, when we started out here, you do really reach a point of saturation in which it's how much longer do I need to look at the bleeding corpse in order to say, we've got to do something to stop the bleeding. And uh, that's where people will come in and say, well, yeah, well, what are you doing about it? Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> this is, again, one of these things that people don't understand yet is that We can think we're doing all manner of great things for the cause and the interest of the will of God. But honestly, are we? I mean, this scripture right here that you read in Psalms 15, he that puts not his money out at usury, nor takes reward against the innocent, he that does these things shall never be moved. But we are being moved and we're not the one practicing these things. So what are we being moved toward? And that 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 phrase shall never be moved simply means that we remain steadfast as a rock that cannot be moved. Well. Therein lies our hope. It does. And And, uh, as I started out earlier and said, you know, we've got a thousand hacking at the branches, as Henry David Thoreau said, and there's only one hacking at the root. And there again is one of the roots. He that puts his money out at usury. Well, who is he that puts his money out at usury? And who is it that does that? without question or pause, and by doing it, it's taking reward against the innocent. Well, it's a reprobate. That's who takes, who does these things. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, And a reprobate, is is real similar to Cain, isn't it? Then sin knocked at the door, and he didn't deal with it, and it got in, didn't it? So Cain it knew the truth, and he said same thing that 
that prodigal son said, I just want to do my thing. I, I know about all that church stuff. I know about all that Jesus stuff. But I want to go my way. Once you make that decision, you become the, you're in the reprobate zone, aren't you? You just entitled, you just announced that you're God in your your world, and it's destined for a crash if you're one way or the other. It's destined for destruction. For sure. For sure. Well, <clears throat> I had got an email a week or so ago, I guess, and it centered on a question about the Bride of Christ. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, in, in getting ready to contemplate, <clears throat> excuse me, a response to that, I, um, you know, just, I, I don't know. I know there are some that they just fire a response out real quick right away. They've got it all, you know, and it just is quick. And I, I think I tend to <clears throat> take these, these inquiries, uh, and, mm, I guess let the spirit move me <laughs> a little bit more in terms of um, maybe it's because I'm not that learned and I have to think about it for a while. <laughs> so, so truth is out of the bag now, perhaps. Um, so I don't, I don't really know, but as I, uh, as I do think about them and so forth, uh, it seems like you are, you know, led uh, if you will, in your thinking, in your thoughts, and the word, and so forth, and and during the process of that, <clears throat> this, let me mute this for a second. Give me a second here. For some reason, I got something there that has decided it needed to park itself in my upper respiratory there i'm not experiencing anything it's just some clogged up stuff i guess hanging out there that was very graphic i know shouldn't do that anyhow so as i'm thinking about these things um it seems like the kinsman redeemer um came into my mind and and i began spending some time trying to uh, understand what exactly it was that was being said to me about that and the spirit. And um, so, as I say, I, from time to time, I'm taking notes and I'm reading and doing this and doing that. And, and in the course and the process of that, I may also do some research and things and <clears throat> I may have things come across the uh, computer and the internet search engine or something that that you know uh, jumps out at me or or that i'm just i don't know just happens to appear and i really don't know exactly how this thing happened but while i was thinking on answering about the bride of christ 
and um, the emailer, I um, had an article pop up. And as I say, I'm not really sure exactly how it popped up. Um, because I started out looking at the Kinsman Redeemer in Leviticus. And so I was doing some Bible hub uh, reading of various verses and getting the definition of words and so forth. And um, sometimes because I'm uh, perhaps a little bit lazy, I'll, I'll type a search in for a scripture. And so that's usually how something will happen. In, in, in other words, instead of thumbing through the Bible, I grab the easy way and I confess my sin. I'll grab the easy way. And I know the essence of the scripture, probably even know where it's at, but I'll just quick type it in and I'll get my, I'll get my search result. And so I'll go right there to the Bible hub and pull it up. Sometimes I don't even flip back in the Bible. I'll read the scripture there. But anyhow, there is a serious problem as it pertains to this issue about the bride of Christ and um, the kinsman redeemer is woefully lacking in an understanding. And it occurred to me that as I was taking the notes and so forth is that the the title probably for this fellowship would be understanding the kinsman redeemer a key to the bride of christ the typical christian understanding of this bride of christ goes something along these lines the church is uh, comprised of those who have said a sinner's prayer and they've accepted jesus into their heart and it's a symbolism of a marriage which is applied to Christ and, and this body of believers, the church. Uh, they might even be able to tell you that in Old Testament times, uh, they might be told uh, that this body of believers uh, essentially was likened to as a, as a marriage betrothal. It begins as a betrothal, in essence, like a modern equivalent of, of someone proposing to take a woman's hand in marriage, equivalent of a suitor's proposal to, to a maiden. And thus, the parties essentially remain separate and, and until they've, um, uh, till the marriage ceremony. And in this way, Christ is thus separated from his bride, that is the, the body of these believers in the church, as it's called, and that during a, a church age um, is when this is all taking place and so forth. And so this time here of this church age is is this time when the bride is to be faithful until the bridegroom comes for her. Um, and then this, this great rapture of the church and the church bride will occur and, and uh, the marriage will be consummated. That's essentially the essence of the way it goes and the way it's taught 
to many. And the question that I have is, is this really biblical? And I'd like to read an article that I happened across. And this is the question. Why do you say the bride of Christ is the church when it's actually the new Jerusalem? And this questioner cites Revelation chapter 21, verses 2, 9, 10, and 11. And this was the answer. In some passages, the bride is the church. See Ephesians 5, 25 to 7. The imagery is the presentation to himself, Christ, the radiant church in the same way a husband is presented a wife. Also see 2 Corinthians 11, 2 to 3, where Paul relates the church to Christ's bride. So when we come to Revelation 19 to 21, where reference is made to the wedding of the lamb, the bride of the lamb, Revelation 19, 7, and the wife of the lamb, Revelation 21, verse 9, is clear that this bride is the new Jerusalem. Now, it's not absolutely clear exactly what this city is. There are a number of views. And then it cites where you might want to go to review some of those views. And then it continues. Galatians 4.26 actually relates the New Jerusalem to a woman. So which is the metaphor? Question. The bride or the city? Or are they both metaphors for a new covenant or people? It is definitely debatable and the answers may not be known for certain this side of heaven. Another person who is an elder above, this was a volunteer, and so the elder then adds uh, his comments. A people and a place are often identified virtually interchangeably, both in the Bible and in the modern culture. For example, Jerusalem or Babylon or Portland, they're all used in the sense of a place and also a people. Jerusalem suffered at the hands of Babylon, or Portland is a liberal city. So, is the bride of Christ the church, a people, or the new Jerusalem, a place where people live? The answer is both. It's not either or, it's both. And a people, and the place where that people dwell, are inseparably linked that's even true of God and heaven. The prodigal son said, I have sinned against heaven. Of course, that was the same as saying, I have sinned against God. It's a false assumption that the bride of Christ must be either the church, God's people, in parenthesis, or the new Jerusalem. In fact, according to scripture, it is both. So the person who made the inquiry now has a follow-up question. Not one of the scriptures you gave me says the church is the bride of Christ. Second Corinthians 11, 2-3 mentions a virgin. 
and Paul admits he's talking foolishness. A virgin is not a bride. If she was, then what about the parable of the ten virgins? Will Christ have ten wives? Would a man marry his own body? Here's the follow-up response from the volunteer. 2 Corinthians 11, 2-3 does not say outright that the church is the bride. Paul relates the church to Christ's bride. He says, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin. He is talking to the local Corinthian church. It is clear that Paul is using marriage imagery to speak of the relation of Christ to the church. You dismiss this passage by saying Paul is talking foolishness. What Paul is doing is simply talking about the very next sentence, where he speaks of his feelings of jealousy for the Corinthian church. He says he feels a bit foolish, barring his strong feelings, or bearing, I should say, his strong feelings for the readers of this letter. He is not talking about this metaphor of presenting a virgin to a husband. When a virgin is presented to a husband, it is clearly a marriage situation. To think otherwise is to suggest Paul is talking about fornication. You dismiss this passage by referring to the ten virgins of Matthew 25. Here, Jesus is using a simile. He says the kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who went out to meet their bridegroom. The point of this parable is to be ready to live life prepared to meet the Savior. Jesus is using the metaphor to teach a truth. He's not talking about bigamy like you suggest when you ask, will Christ have ten wives? Another metaphor you mentioned is the church as the body of Christ, asking the question, will a man marry his own body? Is mixing metaphors. It's like asking, will Christ marry sheep? The church is sometimes referred to as sheep in scripture. Mixing metaphors is a logical no-no in the English language and doesn't strengthen your argument. You are adamant in the belief that the bride is a city. I believe that too, because the Bible plainly says it is. Does this mean you believe Jesus will marry a city which is made up of streets, buildings, and gates? How does one marry real estate? Doesn't it make sense to interpret scripture in light of what other scriptural passages say? Can you deny that scripture likens the relationship of Christ and the church to a husband and his wife? The bottom line is this. The Revelation passage is imagery. It is what John saw while on the island of Patmos. He did not say what he saw was on the island of Patmos. He said it was a view to the future. He wrote the last book of the Bible, and what it says must be interpreted in light of all Scripture. All we are saying is the holy city is described metaphorically as the bride because of other passages such as Ephesians 5.25-7 and Galatians 4.26, which you seem to ignore. It seems logical to interpret the metaphor of the New Jerusalem as the inhabitants of the city of God. We are simply appealing to the whole of Scripture in the long run. It doesn't matter what so-and-so says. It matters what Scripture says. And then the elder followed up and said, I agree wholeheartedly with the above words. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2-3, the virgin is to become Christ's bride. 
she is a virgin before she is married. This is very plain to me. What other possible meaning is there of Christians being promised to Christ as a husband and being presented to him as the virgin to whom the virgin who becomes his bride? I see this as the plain and simple meaning of this text. So there was a person's question, and then the person seeking an understanding <clears throat> got a further question as a part of the response. And I don't know if everybody could follow that. I know when it comes that way, it's, it's not like when you read it yourself and you're digesting the words that you're hearing and seeing or seeing and from the page and so forth. And so it may not always be received in the same way. And, and I don't mean comprehended in the sense of did anybody comprehend it, but you may glean additional things out of it as your own mind, you know, works as it reads. <clears throat> and so, uh, I looked at that and thought, did that young man or woman, whoever it may have been, get an answer? And this, I think, is where I become, where I'm at, is that I recognize how many who are in this same boat and are searching for answers and truth and they find those answers are woefully lacking. And as a result, they may in fact tend to leave the body of believers. They're being called and they need fed. And in their desire to be fed, um, it appears that <clears throat> their nourishment is lacking. And so I asked the question just before I read the article, the question is, is this view, are these things that are relayed in this answer to this individual, are they, are they biblical? And these are the scriptures in the article, just so you can jot them down, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verses one and two, I believe it was, and I'll scroll back up and double check that. Uh, two to three, 11, two to three, second Corinthians 11, two to three is one of the scriptures. Ephesians 5, 24 to seven is the second and revelation 19, seven to nine. And basically there was also a second reference to Galatians 4, 26. And Revelations 21 verses 1 and 2 and 9 to 11, essentially by the inquirer. So, in the epistles of Paul, he conveys in those epistles certain truths. He does so through the biblical application of marriage as it was with Jacob Israel. And something that his audience in that day clearly had an understanding of. 
And I thought about how watered down marriage has become today and how much it is mocked in the way that we have these things called marriages today. And certainly the people that are authorized or allowed under under man's world uh, to be married. And this article is really a, a vast representation of what plagues us today. There, there's this lack of understanding and even disregard of the divine efficacy of marriage. It's, it's the forgetfulness or the disregard by many in positions of ecclesiastical leadership of the very marriage relationship that Yahweh had and that the biblical record conveys and carries into and should carry into the understanding in that new covenant record. And this leads to a, a totally unhelpful answer to this inquirer by this leadership or pastor that this individual sought to get that question asked. And I thought this last statement, I'm going to quote it again from the elder. This part of it, she is a virgin before she is married. What other possible meaning is there of Christians being promised to Christ as a husband and being presented to him as the virgin who becomes his bride? And the only thing that I could think of it popped out of my head right away was, well, what about the most probable biblical meaning? And that being that those Corinthians, as Israelites, having been redeemed by the blood of Christ, had been washed clean of the sin, which had separated them from God, and now made them as clean and pure as a virgin. That truly is the biblical answer. There's more to it, of course. And as I say, as I was thinking about being the kinsman redeemer aspect, as I was preparing to respond to an email that I got with regards to the bride of Christ, um, I seemed to be led into this as another part of the teachable aspect of this which is why i thought maybe the the title for the fellowship would be understanding kinsman redeemer a key to the bride of christ we were in romans quite a bit over the last couple of weeks turn with me to romans chapter 9 again And let's just begin 
at verse 1. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Paul wished that he could be the curse for his brethren because his own brethren, his own flesh and blood, his own Judahite brethren, people of Israel, including those here in Rome that he's made the epistle to, he would rather that he could be their own curse because he knew they were not receiving this truth. And that's how he viewed it. It was so emotional and personal to him that he would desire, essentially, that he could be the curse for them. When you go on through the rest of Romans chapter 9, and in the last two weeks, we went through quite a bit of both 9 and 11, but verses 6 and 7, direct relation to Genesis 21, 12. I'm not going to go through these. Verses 8 to 9, Genesis 18 and 14. Uh, verses 10 and 12 of Romans 9, directly related to Genesis 25, 23. Um, verse 13, a direct relationship to Malachi 1, 2, and 3. Verses 14 to 15 of Romans 9, direct relationship to Exodus 33, 19. Verses 16 to 18 of Romans 9, direct correlation with Exodus 9, 16. Verses 19 through 21 of Romans 9, directly related with Isaiah 29, 16, and 45, 9. Verses 22 through 25 of Romans chapter 9, directly related to Hosea 2, 23. Verse 26 of Romans 9, directly related to Hosea 1.10. Verse 27 and 8 of Romans 9, directly related to Isaiah 10, 22 and 3. Verse 29, directly connected with Isaiah 1, verse 9. And verse 33, directly related to Isaiah 28.16. In part of those scriptures and those references, especially out of Isaiah, he said, if God had not saved us a remnant, we would also be as Sodom and Gomorrah. And that means utterly destroyed. Flip over to Matthew chapter 10. That's all new covenant. That's all new covenant there, Romans chapter 9. 
Matthew 10, verses 5 to 6. Jesus speaking. These 12 prior, here's the, here's the context. These 12, Jesus sent forth and commanded them saying, go not into the way of the Gentiles, meaning nations. See our uh, fellowship series, Israel, Judah, and Jew for an understanding of the Gentiles. Go not the way into the way of the nations or the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans enter you, enter you not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Skipping over to verse 23. But when they persecute you in this city, flee you, go into another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man become. Turn now to Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I know those here in this fellowship, these are all familiarities to us. And so we have to say to those that are around us that we come in contact with and we have conversation with from time to time, even our own brothers and sisters in Christ. Provide us one biblical citation that the bride is what the church world calls the church. Instead of getting that one biblical citation or the two or three. What we get is inferences, innuendos, conjecture interpretation essentially no scriptural proof rather the concept has to be spiritualized in order to be presented as biblical in other words the first covenant must be reinterpreted to apply to whom they desire the new covenant should be applied to I think so much when that's being done of the passages in Ezekiel chapter 37, the passages in Matthew chapter 3, Ezekiel 37 is the dead bones being made alive, the dry dead bones, the stones that Christ said he could raise up to as children to Abraham. The church world desires to spiritualize some understanding, which is already there in the scripture. Why is it that they refuse to use it and rather teach, I don't know, doctrines of demons, falsehoods? Outright lies. 
the church world takes it entirely upon themselves to transfer what they actually admit are promises in the prophecies and promises as says as the covenants as paul clearly you know conveys in romans galatians ephesians and they will apply them to an entity called church the church Doing so actually requires one to believe the God of the Old Testament had an earthly bride, his people Israel. But Christ came that he should marry a spiritual bride. But wait, it's worse than that. This same church has decidedly declared those calling themselves Jews today are God's chosen people. Doesn't that mean that Yahweh actually has two wives? And I think this needs to be answered. Because that's essentially what has occurred. If you're going to say that the people called Jews today are still God's chosen people, he's still married to his bride. Those people called Jews today. And now... In the church, you say, well, the bride is the church, the body of these believers. And they're being presented as a bride to Christ. The only way they can do that is they have to have that be future. But they do it anyway, applying it just as they did in this letter in response to this individual who inquired, how is it that you can say, I'll read the question again, how is it that you can say, why do you say the bride of Christ is the church when it's actually the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 2, and 9 through 11? So this individual, individual literally read in Revelation 21, let's go there. He literally read, I, I say he, I don't mean to gender specify something that would not be correct. I don't know who the individual was or the gender. So if I use it in the masculine, uh, it's just a normal way in which I would respond. Uh, Revelation 21, here's verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Drop down to verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, full of the seven plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me 
that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And that is exactly right. So you might say, well, that's pretty much the end of the end of the message or the end of the information, huh? Well, not exactly. Because, as I say, I was preparing to provide a response to an inquiry that I had by explaining the kinsman redeemer. And it seemed that this was a teachable moment for it to be one to address both a necessity of the understanding of the kinsman redeemer in conjunction with the bride of Christ. And so that's what we'll endeavor to do. We know that from Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 to 8, God called his people a peculiar treasure, a kingdom of priests. They made a vow to him. He made a vow to them. It was sealed in the blood, blood of animals. Turn now to Matthew chapter 22. Verses 1 to 14. Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, well, maybe I should provide the question. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. I'm at 21:45. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parallel, par parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king which made a marriage for his son. He sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all the things ready come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. The remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then said he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid them to the marriage. So these servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not had on wedding garment. He said unto him, Friend, how came you thou into not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. There's many representations in this parable. And so we've got some things to unpack. Who's the king? Who is the king's son? Who or what represents the service? Who were those that were invited to come? What is meant or to whom is represented by those good guests and bad guests? Who are the other servants? Why was there a friend without wedding garments? 
who is or what represents the guest without his wedding garments. And who is being called? And who is being married? Flip back a page, perhaps in your Bible, but chapter 21 of Matthew at verse 43. For context, uh, um, verse 42. Well, actually, the parable of the vineyard, but I don't have time for it. So read through the parable of the vineyard and then down to 42. Jesus says unto them, did you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected the same has become the head of the corner this is is the lord's doing and it is marvelous in your eyes therefore i say unto you the kingdom of god shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof now he just got through giving them a parable of the vineyard where they themselves the Pharisees answered and said he will utterly destroy those murderers and those wicked men. And so Christ turns right around and says, therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to another, bringing forth the fruits thereof. At John chapter 3, verses 28 to 9, John the Baptist conveys that there is to be something on the order of a wedding. Let's flip over to John here real quick. I know this is a lot. I'm just trying to set the stage and get our thoughts flowing as to all of this, especially those who are new to all of this and those that you might send these audios out to. To help them in understanding. And as I said last week, it was one of the things I mentioned to Pastor Peters in, in redoing a message that he had done. And I had shared with him that it seems as if sometimes people are clouded by their preconceived notion or their preconceived judgment or idea about an individual. And I think in this way here, John the Baptist represents that similar kind of consideration in john chapter 3 they're coming to john about the test you know testimony about jesus and how many are coming to jesus and being baptized and so forth it's as if to say you know you're you're not do you do you like this about about this guy who who now is doing greater and and seems to be doing more mighty things than than you john Aren't you jealous, John? But what John recognized is that the message now that was being relayed was, was more important to be heard than whatever message that it was that John was bringing. And John's message was one that needed to fade away or it needed to be taken out of the way so that the better message or the broader message or that the other message would again have opportunity to be uh, found fertile ground on John chapter uh, 3 verses 28 and 9 and I uh, let's see they came to John let me go to 26 they came to John and said unto him Rabbi he that was with thee beyond the Jordan to whom thou bearest witnesses behold the same baptized all men and all men come to him John answered and said 
A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This joy thereof, this my joy thereof is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. So important there is to be this, this, this understanding that John is trying to convey. And I find that with us. If anybody hears these messages and they need to redo them because the messenger is not liked, the messenger is perceived as something other than, then redo them. So that you might reach the one rather than have the one slip away. I wish that it weren't that way, that we would, as individual human beings, not be so detracted by what somebody else says about somebody or even what the news media has said. And it goes to the issue of the teachable moment of the other emailer that I expressed with you several weeks ago. I did respond to that emailer with some very nice communicating response. And the emailer didn't even have the courtesy to say, okay, I got it. I'll check it out. So I don't know, as I said then, whether the person was genuine or not and whether it falls in the category of casting pearls before swine. But I know that there are people like this individual here who wrote to get an answer to a question. And he wants that answer. She, he, she, whoever it was, wants that answer. So John is conveying that there is to be something on the order of a wedding, a bridegroom. He being the friend of the bridegroom is conveying Something which is the bride comes. And that's exactly what he did. If Christ is indeed the bridegroom. And the bridegroom was announced that he was coming. And John was that person who was to announce that coming. And that he was coming for his bride, Israel, the lost sheep. Imagine, if you will being a bridegroom and the hour for your vows has come and the friend of the bridegroom who was to bring the good news of the bride or excuse me of the bridegroom coming sends out a message and gives the wrong date or even the wrong woman and that's almost what the church world has done has been to present the wrong woman, the bridegroom's bride. And this person is questioning who is the bridegroom's bride. 
at the very least, they've misrepresented who she is. Essentially trying to force the fat foot of their interpretation of the bride into the silver slipper of the true bride. And it's not fitting. By way of historical review, 1 Kings chapter 11 and chapters 12, nearly a thousand years before Christ regards the events of the separation of the two kingdoms from the kingdom of Jacob Israel. The two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, they're often referred to as two sisters, two women, two men, two sticks, two pots. Israel went into Assyrian captivity about 745 to 677 BC. She was divorced, Jeremiah 3.8, and she never returned again to the land of Canaan. Judah went into the Babylonian captivity in 597 to about 527 BC and was in that captivity for the prophesied 70 years. They returned, that is Judah, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. And none of the house of Israel ever returned to Jerusalem, ever, either. And Judah was not divorced. John chapter 1 verse 11 tells us that he came to his own and his own received him not. His own were his Judahite kinsmen and brethren. Luke 19.10 tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Hosea 1, 6, and 7 says that these people that were lost were no longer his wife. Jeremiah 3, 8, they'd been divorced. Isaiah chapter 50, where God expressed, where's your bill of divorce? Jeremiah 24, verses 5 and 7, tells us that Judah was not divorced. Hosea 9, 16 to 17, Ephraim, Israel, was said to be the wanderers among the nations. That divorce law, by the way, is in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And it's necessary from time to time to review it. I don't know that I'm going to go there right now because I'm going to go to Romans chapter 7. But we should, probably after reading this, or at least those who are inquiring about it, you can go there on your own. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Know you not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman, which has a husband, is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress. 
though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. That divorce mandate in, in Deuteronomy 24.1 is due to uncleanness. Once divorce, a woman normally would relinquish the husband's name. A lot of churches, in fact, are actually teaching women to essentially keeping the name who are becoming divorced for uncleanness. Jesus proclaimed he was not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. In John chapter 10, let's begin with one. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him that, to him the porter opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow but they will flee from him for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what these things were, which he spake to them. Then Jesus said unto them again, verily, verily, which means truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he's a hireling. He cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep have I, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And I'll stop there. He specifically conveys that he has two folds of sheep. He's speaking to the Pharisees who do not understand. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 12, which you'll find in our series that we did in the fellowship series, Hosea, prophet of the greatest love story of the ages. This is where we find a prophetic record, Judah yet ruled with God. This is roughly 786 to 746 BC. 
nearly 800 years yet before the advent of Christ. And it's roughly about the time of the actual fall of the northern capital of Samaria. This continued relationship with Judah was necessary for Israel's redemption could only be done via a kinsman redeemer. If God had divorced Judah, he would have also cut off the kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is in the law found in Leviticus, Leviticus 25, verses 23 to 25. There are probably 18 instances, and at least a dozen of those are in the second half of Isaiah alone. No one can rob us of the liberty wherein Christ has set us free but ourselves. Israel's own sin sold them into slavery and bondage. We know from Scripture that he that commits sin is the slave of sin. And death is the penalty of sin. Yahweh, the God of Jacob Israel, brings a return of Israel's squandered inheritance into a covenantal relationship with him again. Having sinned away that fellowship with God, just as Adam and Eve had done. And the question really is, are we the next generation to do so also? Isaiah chapter 52 verse 3 says that they were sold for nothing and they would be redeemed without money. I know we all have heard this before and I don't mean to be redundant. For those that have heard this and have read these scriptures over and over and understand this. But there's something that I don't think that we really have taken the time to really understand. Turn with me now to Leviticus chapter 25. In verses 23 to 25 is where you will find a kinsman's redeemer's redemption of land. In Leviticus 25, verses 35 to 36, you'll find redemption of one who has become poor by you. And in Leviticus 25, verses 47 to 48, 
is where you'll find a servant's redemption. Israel was God's servant. Israel was divided into the two houses, Judah and Israel. But Israel was still to be destined, according to the promise, his servant. But Israel could not understand how they could ever be his servant ever again because they had been divorced by God. And a divorced woman, according to Paul, according to the law, could not be reunited with her former husband in marriage. After that, that woman is defiled. She is not free to remarry until the former husband be dead. Then she would be free to remarry. This is why the book of Ruth becomes so misunderstood as well. Because New Covenant references to Christ our Redeemer can't easily be discerned with misunderstandings of some of these Old Testament passages and laws. Even Revelation chapter 5 is a sealed book and its provisional requirements are written in that book about redeeming Israel from their sin and their death. This law has three components, and I know we're getting toward the top of the hour and we probably won't go much farther here. And let's break it out a little bit here uh, in the end of this first part. This law has, as I say, the three components. I referenced already the pertaining to the land there at 25, 25 to 34, pertaining to the redeeming of a poor person that's poor by you at 35 to 55. And as it pertains to widows is actually in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. So I'm going to go over to Deuteronomy real quick. As we continue to remind ourselves how we can share this information with others about this bride of Christ and get them to understand it biblically as opposed to what the church world has fed them. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 to 10. If a brethren dwell together and one of them die and has no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. It shall be that the firstborn which she bears shall secede in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refused to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. The elders shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, 
I like not to take her. Then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders, let loose the shoe off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, so shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that has his shoe loose. Well, for the vast majority of professing Christians, I'm sure that passage there has very little meaning, very little understanding. But redeeming and redemption. Redemption is number 1350. It's we got out. We got um, The O could be long and it could be we go out. Redeem is simply go out. It means to buy back. To buy back or to purchase, to redeem. A kinsman in this passage of scriptures is number 1350. It's go alo. It means redeem from slavery. <clears throat> A close male relative by blood. It also means protector. So a kinsman redeemer is one who is close, a close male relative by blood. He is a protector and he redeems as one would redeem one from slavery. He buys back. Goel. A kinsman redeemer is a Goel. That kinsman redeemer, not only needing to be a close relative, had to be able, or should be able, and should be willing. And this is where we'll close for today and pick it up next week as we begin to understand once again or for the first time the kinsman redeemer as a key to the bride of Christ. Heavenly Father, I ask that your blessing be upon this wherever it goes. And Father, I thank you for those that have been coming to these archives over the years and that there has been edification. Father, I pray for your continued blessing upon these words this evening from your word that however they've come together, that they'll be meaningful and edifying. If nothing more, it inspires them to go into the word, to search these matters out, just by us referencing 
those scriptural passages. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We pray that your guidance for all those that will come to see and understand this light and this truth, that they will be able to also then tell others and share this good news about this bride, this key to the understanding through their kinsman redeemer, who their bride, or who the bride of Christ truly is. So, Father, we ask for a blessing on it wherever it may go. Thank you for the inspiration and bringing the the thoughts necessary to try to bring greater understanding. Father, I pray for your nation, your people in this nation, America, your people all over. Father, there are Dutch farmers who have milked their cows for the last time. Father, the madness and the insanity, it's, it's as if your people are preparing to lie down and, and die because the shackles are upon them and they're being told that you will no longer milk your cows. Father, I pray for them. I know they've fought a good fight for the last two or three years, Father. Father, I pray for your people here in America that they be the light to a darkened world and that they would shine the light of hope and truth and the beacon of liberty and righteousness in you. They would turn away from their idol of this piece of paper called the Constitution and they will once again return to you, to your true liberty. Father, I know your people are in need everywhere. I know, Father, that we have greatly sinned. The very passages that we read in the Psalms, the very usury that has been imposed upon us, imposed in our lands, brought us into bondage to the usurer. We are now servants to the lender and have been for nearly our entire post-constitutional period. Father, we call upon your name and ask that you hear our cries. We ask this prayer be lifted up to your ears in a matter most fitting. We see your will being done in the heavens now as it pertains to your people in your lands wherever you've given them. We ask, Father, for your blessing upon them. For righteousness' sake, that your name be magnified and glorified. Amen. Amen. Amen.